All right. Let's get rolling. If I could have everyone grab, well, wow, that's nice and loud. If I could have everyone grab their seat, we are going to get started today. Or continue our worship, I should say. We're not starting, we're continuing. It's good to see a lot of faces. Hope you all have had your Cheerios, coffee, or whatever it is, is your breakfast of champions in the morning to wake yourselves up as we dive in. How's everyone doing this morning? Wow. <laughs> Only the guy, the dentist, said good. I think. <laughs> no, welcome if you're new here to Restore. I am uh, Pastor Charles along with Pastor Cleet. Pastor Mike and Pastor Nick, we have the privilege of being under shepherds here at Restore Church. So let me lead us in prayer, and then we're going to roll from there together, okay? Father, you are a holy, holy, holy God, and we are not. You molded us with your very hands. You breathe life into us, a spirit into us. You created us to glorify you, but that was broken because of sin. Crafted a plan in advance before you even created us <laughs> to save wretched people like us that deserve no saving. Your son put it all on the line in a way that we're still constantly comprehending as we grow in more Christ-likeness. We thank you for the work on the cross that's beyond our comprehension except for what you allow us to understand. And we thank you for this moment in time for every moment is a building block onto you to grow us in more Christ-likeness. So may our hearts be impacted by the very word. May it go to our mind and then down to our hearts by the working of the indwelling spirit and we mature ever so slightly, even just the size of a breadcrumb, in more Christ-likeness. And may my words be your words as we move forward today, Father. Lift these things up in your son's matchless name. Amen. So I was at work a few days ago, and I thought I saw a squirrel go up the tree, but it was a cat chasing another cat. Actually, it was quite amusing. And so I stopped work for a second because I've never seen that before. So this black cat was chasing a white cat. There's no. <laughs> I could make some humor out of that, but no, we're not going <laughs> to. So a black-haired cat was chasing a white-haired cat, okay? Chased him up the tree. The cat, the white-haired cat went so far up the tree, the black-haired cat got halfway up and looked up, looked back down. I kid you not. I looked at the head, went up and looked down and said, no, I'm not doing this here. I'm just putting words in it like, no, bro, I've stopped the chase right now. So he started going back down with his claws. The other cat stayed up in the tree, was trying to figure out how to get down. Now, all in my flesh was going, cats, they're so stupid. I can't believe it. But it reminded me of a few things because it took the cat a while. It was up there for, it was up all night. I told Amherst, my, my daughter about it, my wife about it, so she started calling around to different animal places or organizations to see if they could come and get the cat. And then the next morning, the cat did get down. I don't know if it just jumped and realized that it does truly have nine lives or <laughs> something else. But either way, it was gone. But it reminded me of something. When that cat was up there, we tried, me and my wife and my little one went out and they tried to call the cat down, you know, make all these meow sounds, and I will not do that here in front of you guys. It's not happening. But 
it just had this hopeless look on its face. And later on, as I was preparing this message, getting over the amusement of the black cat chasing the white cat out the tree, um, I realized that's us. You know, we are hopeless without our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we look down and going, how are we going to do this? How are we going to do this? And it reminded me a lot about how our only hope is Christ. Our only hope is Christ. So as we continue this walk through Proverbs, keep in mind that it's a walk of wisdom, wisdom unto God. And just a reminder, what is that wisdom unto God? Well, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we know by the found, it says God by wisdom created the foundations of the earth. And we know that not anything in heaven or earth was created without it being created through Christ. So we know Christ is that wisdom. So it all goes back to Jesus Christ for us. And today, as we focus on Proverbs 3, uh, 3 through 4, it's really as we continually walk through Proverbs, we're on a particular message, which is wisdom in marriage. We're going to use this verse as our foundation, take four key things out of it, and then from there, we'll pull it all back together in sort of a marching order as we move forward. Make sense? So, if you can turn your Bibles to Proverbs 3, 3 through 4. And uh, let's dive in. So first, let's start with the wisdom of the world when it comes to marriage. I watched a video, it was pretty funny, where the husband was saying, so when your wife has worked all day, and she's like laying on the, she's literally like laying on the ground like she's half dead, and, and it was, it was sort of a, a humorous piece. And he goes, if you really want to help her, this is what you do. You make a to-do list, and he make the to-do list, and he threw it on her like that. It was like a humorous thing. But I think about that's what it's all about, right? In our marriages, it's, it's me, it's her, it's us against each other at times. So when we look at the wisdom of the world, this is what it boils down to. In 2022, approximately 50% of all marriages will end in divorce. Subsequent marriages have an even higher chance of ending up in divorce, with 60 and 73% of second and third marriages ending up in divorce, respectively. The U.S. has the sixth highest divorce rate in the world. Um, you want to know the highest, that's the Maldives. I don't know what's going on in the Maldives, but I don't know. <laughs> I think they're like the size of a half a state, so I don't know what's going on over there. Um, the average length of a marriage that ends in divorce is eight years. January is considered divorce month. Um, and the reason why is because people start looking for information, you know, hey, I'm going to go work out of the gym, I'm going to get rid of some excess baggage, meaning my spouse, and January becomes the time that they start filing, statistically. Obviously, people do file at different times, but statistically. Uh, the issue becomes lawyers are typically on break, so they have to wait until the attorneys come back off of holiday. So why people are divorcing in the United States? What do you think? What, what, shout out some reasons. What do you think they're divorcing in the United States? What else? Infinite. Let me pause real quick. Can I have you guys bring me a little thing of water? I gave it to a little bit, and she drank it all, so I need to bring enough of my Sorry about that. I told her not to eat the cupcake. She ate it, and she paid a price for it. Anyway, please continue. I'm sorry. Please continue. Number one, so reasons. Keep shouting them out. Someone said money, adultery. Thank you, brother. I so appreciate it. Well, number one reason is lack of commitment, supposedly, from what they say. Oh, you know, when they put these numbers together, 
you got you to take it with some grain of salt in there. But yes, number one commitment, uh, lack of commitment, 73%. 56% said argue too much. 55% said infidelity, which is true. 46% said married too young. Unreal, uh, 45% said unrealistic expectations. 44% lack of equality in the relationship. Um, 41% lack of preparation for marriage. 25% domestic violence. That's, just take a quick pause. I just want to tell you, if there's anyone here right now going through any sort of violence in your relationship or marriage, please let us know. We all need to have all hands on deck. No one should be hurting another spouse within um, a marriage or relationship period. And that's something we need to walk through aggressively and apply the laws of the land accordingly to as the Lord would call us to. There's also the mention of that kind of goes down when we have some religious affiliation. Always, that always cracks me up. Some religious affiliation brings down divorce numbers. Um, and I, I think I'd add to that's the, mor- the moral part of it, right? We can moral our way into it. Uh, but is being moral, more moral the answer? Is that the answer? Is that good enough for marriages? Or singles, I want to say singles, everything we're going to talk about today, this also applies to you too, because what you are right now, you take into a marriage. And so if you're not working on it now, it's going to get exposed to someone else. And so it applies the same. Is it good enough for us to just be moral? When Isaiah 57, 12, the Lord says, I'll go over detail by detail, all your righteous attempts at religion and expose the absurdity of it all. I think that's pretty tough. I will expose your righteousness and your works and they will not profit you. We're not good enough. But we once were in the beginning, right? In the beginning, we were blameless before God because we focused on God. And the moment we took our eyes off of God, then what happened? Sin stepped in. The curse stepped in. And we could not stop sinning. Now, I know for some it's kind of hard to understand what that means. Our propensity, we have moments of niceness. We, we bear the image of God, imago Dei. We bear the image of God, our ability to love and create out of the things that he's given us and to have joy and compassion and laugh and all these wonderful things, but it is scarred by our sin nature. Our ability for one moment to be nice in that same breast, to cuss someone out or think something badly of someone, to have a lustful thought, a murderous thought, an angry thought, a deceptive thought, a lying thought, that combination makes us separated from God who's holy, holy, holy and commands that we be holy unto him, not just off and on as we think is okay. So it isn't about us. And that's one of the things sometimes, some of you may have heard me say it, I say it to myself at times, it's not about you. I have to remind it, it's not about me. It's not about my thoughts. It's not about my feelings. It's about God's ways. It's about God's thoughts. It's about God's feelings. Um, It all goes back to God. In the Garden of Eden, it was all about God. This is what you can do, and this is what you can't do. And the moment they did what they should not have done, now they can't stop focusing on what they want to do. And that is us, right? What does he say in Isaiah 55, 8 through 9? For my thoughts 
are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. We can't trust ourselves. And that's an important thing for us to remember. As image bearers of God, because of our sin nature, our propensity to go from good, bad, good, bad, good, bad, every single second, that is what separates us from God. And I know that could be so confusing because in the midst of it, moments of niceness, someone, you know, gives a kidney or saves someone's life. Those are good things. But in the same breath, the wretchedness that comes out afterwards shows that we don't meet the mark with God. So today, we're going to continue our walk, as I said, through Proverbs. And it's going to be on Proverbs 3, 3 through 4. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the top of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. So basically, this is wisdom in marriage. So there are four key words that stand out in verse 3 that we're going to talk about today and lay the foundation for. What do you think those are? As you read through that and you see, let the love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. What four words do you think stand out? Key, a few of them are the actual attributes of God. Yes. Yes. So it's four things. Two is love, faithfulness. The other one is bind and write. So we take some attributes of God and we're to have them bound around our neck and we're to write it on our hearts. We're going to discuss that today. What is love? What is faithfulness unto God? What does it look like for a binding around your neck and a writing on your heart? And what does that mean for us? Because it goes on to further say, then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. So we're going to move quickly. I've got about 20 pages. Uh, I think Nick's going to do some popcorn in the back, have a little intermission, and we're going to keep going from there. <laughs> I'm joking, joking. Let's, I digress. Let's move forward. So faithfulness, love, binding around your neck, writing on your heart. You know, for those that are married... When you got married, you exchanged vows before God and a group of loved ones. And sometimes, I forget this all the time, do you forget that you made a covenant with God before and with God? Let's look at Malachi 2.14. It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. A couple different things I want to pay attention to in that. One is... Witness, the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth and also the wife of your marriage covenant. The Lord is letting you know, you made a covenant before me. This is not something to take lightly. When you were married, you made a covenant before God and man. That's why it says, you look at Mark 10, 9, no one should separate a couple that God has joined together. I don't care where you met. You met on the internet. I don't care if you met, bumped in each other at the grocery store, down the street, through friends. However you met, ultimately God, who tells us we make our plans, he marks our steps, brought you together. So it's irrelevant, but the most important thing is that he brought you together. It all goes back to him. And that marriage covenant was intended to reflect 
the love and relationship between Christ and the church. Therefore, man, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave onto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. I love that picture. The man cleaves onto his wife. When my wife and I were dating, and I was, it was really just an impact to me on what that looks like. Before I became a Christian, the way of dating would be to date someone, and you would treat that person like they're already your wife in all aspects and ignore everything else. But then as I read the scriptures, I realized that when I get married, then I leave my father and mother, so to speak, and then my wife becomes a primary focus, God, then my wife. But before then, it's God, my family, the person I'm dating, and we roll that way. And that's what I explained to my wife. I said, you know what? You're an important part of my life, but right now the pecking order is still my family, then you, and we're working towards that through God. And when you get married, you become on top of that. That's the way it flows. But the world would tell you differently. Be all in now without any vetting through the word of God or any vetting of people in your life. Just go all in. And we see the results of that. Married couples are to be unified in every possible way. So whether you're, so married people and single, future hope of of being married, we know that marriage is still onto God. I can't emphasize that enough. Our marriages are onto God. It's onto God. It's onto God. So that means that we don't look towards any other means but God for our marriages. I'm going to say this in advance. It hit me a long time ago. So I'd hear people say, I don't know what to do, how to lead in my marriage, or how to, um, how to support my husband uh, as a helpmate and so on. I want to tell you something. Think about this. Christ is the bridegroom and we're the bride, right? What did the bridegroom do towards the bride? And if you follow the life of Christ, you will get awesome marching orders on how you are to live out your spousal, requ- your spousal requirement in your marriage. And we're going to talk through a little of that. Let's, let's dive through first love. What is it? What is love? I think there's a song. What is love? <laughs> there's a couple. Some techno one is in my mind. I'm an 80s child, so excuse me. The Hebrew word is what is called chess, C-H-E-S-E-D, and the Greek word is agape, express the kind of love God demonstrates towards his elect, towards those that have repented of their sins, put their faith in Jesus, and move forward in Christ. Chess is often translated as a steadfast love or a loving kindness. I want to focus on that, steadfast love, steadfast love. Numbers 14, 18, let's look through this. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. God's chest love is why he never gives up on those he has adopted as his children. Throughout the Old Testament, we see this, right? God's people repeatedly fell into idolatry and sin, yet he always preserved a remnant. He never gives up on his people. What did you hear him say all the time? If you do this, this will be the results onto me. If you reject, then this will be the curses for me. That's a consistent theme. He told Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, if you do what I ask you not to do, you will surely die, which is why we have death to this day and we're created 
to live for an eternity. Chess is a faithful bond based in a covenant. There are many covenants that you could see of the Lord from the Old Testament all the way through. But one of the things that I want to point out the most is if we look at the life of Christ, and we look at the Father in heaven, and we look at the Holy Spirit, we see something consistently in their love for us to model, and that if we have truly repented of our sins and have the faith in Christ and the Spirit working in us, that we will exhibit, and that is a sacrificial love. That is a huge component, I believe, for our marriage. Let's go to Philippians 2, 3 through 5. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. So let's, let's do it this way. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value your spouse above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each spouse to the interests of the other. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Goes back to God. Isn't that something? It just pulls us right back to it. We say, well, that's easy to say. But we're empowered by the very spirit of God to carry these things out. The very spirit that brought Jesus back to life, the very spirit that cast out demons, the very spirit that healed people, the very spirit that did things that nothing else in the universe could do. I often wonder, I ask, why don't we see that as much in our country, the very things we see in the scripture? Could it be because we just have so much stuff, we're just drowning out the realities of the power of God within us, so we really don't see the things we see in the scriptures? We waste precious time in our marriages waiting on our spouse to love us or waiting for feelings of love from our spouse to return before we in turn will act in love towards our spouse. The result is a vicious cycle of rejection and selfishness. This is something I'm constantly learning. It's not a you scratch my back wife then I scratch yours. It's a what does God call me to do as a husband towards my wife, regardless of what she does towards me? What does Christ call you as a wife to do towards your husband, regardless if you, of what he does towards you? That is so hard to get over, right, in this flesh. Because we typically want, well, she was so nice to me. Oh, I'm going to do this now. But that's not the way God operates. Matter of fact, if you look at the trajectory of God from the beginning to the end, Everything in him says submit and obey. With, in the Garden of Eden, it was, this is what you can do, and this is what you can't do, submit and obey. He repeatedly told the Israelites over and over again, as I mentioned before, if you obey, this is what will happen. If you disobey, this is what will happen. You go to the New Testament, you can go to places like 1 Peter 2, 13 through 14. It says, submit and obey to the governing authorities, whether it be the governor or emperor supreme, as ones who've been put there to persecute against those who do wrong and praise those who do right. He tells you in a marriage for a wife to submit to a husband. He tells us over and over again in his economy, submit and obey. 
It, it always catches me off guard. I know I'll hear some people when they get married. I don't like that submit and obey part for the woman. Everyone in God's economy is called submit and obey. That's just a piece of an area where the woman is called submit and obey to the husband. That isn't the only thing. And not submit and obey in an ungodly way, but she's submit and obeying according to what Christ has called her to. And then the husband is submit and obeying to leading the wife according to what Christ has called him to. Both are submitting and obeying, and in God's economy, you don't just get the free fall to do whatever you want. You submit and obey to what he calls you to in the task at hand, not whatever you want. And I think if we look at it from that perspective and pray on that, maybe by his grace we'll start to see that what he calls us to in our marriages, this is just one of many things for the purpose of building us up in more Christ-likeness. A wife withholds love for a husband, waiting for him to affirm her. Could be the opposite way, too. Encourage her and attend to her. When he doesn't, her feelings for him grow cold and brittle. I don't deserve to be treated that way, she concludes, and then resolves. I'm not going to take his rejection forever. Ironically, on the other side of the marriage, the husband is thinking to himself, loving my wife is like curling up to a porcupine. Each is waiting for the other to take action. That is a recipe for disaster. If we confess our sins and he is faithful and just, he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Why did I say that? In our marriage, if we recognize our natural positioning towards self, there's an opportunity here for repentance and change. Less blame games in our marriage we can take small steps towards looking inward and taking personal responsibility. Some of you heard me say that. I say it's not about, as I said before, it's not about me, it's not about you, it's not about my feelings, it's not about your feelings. Yes, we are image bearers and we have feelings and those things do count, but they all must be validated through the word of God to know if that's flesh or the spirit of God working in us so we can have clarity on where our emotions and feelings should be. And the same thing applies with our marriages. We must consider that we're coming from a broken bent. And in order to truly live out that self-sacrificial love, if we think about Christ, Christ didn't say, I'll die on the cross if you're nice to me. I will die on the cross if you don't reject me. I'll die on the cross if you like me. I will die on the cross if you sit down and have a meal with me. They spit on him. They beat him. He allowed himself to be beaten to the point he wasn't even recognizable, skin falling off him, a crown of thorns in his head, blood coming down his face. And yet he still did it, even for those who specifically beat him, even though with our sins, obviously, we all put him on the cross. That is a self-sacrificial love. So in our marriages, we must think about what does that look like from my bent as a spouse to be self-sacrificial. We have to be careful because sometimes I will see people, they'll, they'll use it as a, as a license to just fall on the sword. Falling on the sword can be a fleshly thing. We think we just fall on the sword and whatever each other says, we just sign off. That is not. We fall on the sword according to what Christ tells us to do. There's a, there's, there's a difference on that. So 
if my husband's in sin, well, your husband's in sin, <laughs> your husband's in sin, um, you want to gently look at it from a helpmate standpoint, then how do I approach him and bring him back in the fold and help lead him to the, the cross? And if my wife is in sin, how do I, through Christ, lead her to that point of seeing the realities of the scriptures, praying for her and walking with her um, to lead her in the right direction? And everything is always centered on Christ because we do it from a flesh standpoint, then obviously uh, there's a catastrophe. And we're all familiar with that. (laughs) I've done that many times. So love, sacrificial love, sacrificial love onto Christ. And what does that look like? Your spouse comes, your spouse comes first in your, how you spiritually and physically serve them. And you're not looking for something in return. You guys with me? You with me? Sacrificial love. That's the love we're talking about. And as we talked about lastly, Christ died on the cross for our sins. He gave up his life for it. I always think of um, a situation where my wife's being attacked and there's nothing else I can do and it looks like I'm just going to have to die to save her life. So I jump over her knowing that I'm going to die. Then I think about the other hand, maybe I'm in a fallen state, and my wife's like, what am I going to do? And she just jumps and covers me, and she dies to protect me. We are throwing it all in for each other, throwing it all in to protect each other through Christ. Second, faithfulness. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the top of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. What is faithfulness? What is the true meaning of it? Well, a definition is the fact or quality of being true to one's word or commitment. As to what one has pledged to do, professes to believe. David often says God's faithfulness is in keeping his promises. Faithfulness is from the Hebrew word emet, E-M-E-T. The primary meaning is dependability. When someone is dishonest or deceptive, we may refer to them as false. But so we're talking about dependability. Throughout our walk with God, we should love God increasingly and become more dependable in doing the work God gives us. One of the fruits of the Spirit is faithfulness. This fruit of the spirit of faithfulness refers to our faithfulness in Christ. Faithfulness in Christ. Just like the love, the sacrificial love, is that of Christ we're taking on. The same thing with this faithfulness. It's the faithfulness in Christ. From one commentator, the word faithful comes from the same Hebrew root as the word amen. It's an attribute of God, but one that is highly extolled in Scripture. You can go throughout Psalms, we find that the faithfulness of God is a source of encouragement and comfort. Faced with desolation of Jerusalem because of nation's sin, the prophet Jeremiah could say of the Lord, great is your faithfulness in spite of all that. Jeremiah could speak of hope in the midst of everything. I was reading through the book of Lamentations, and it, it, was, it was something how the Lord will put in there how he makes advances towards us. He made advances toward them, and they reject it, and they reject it, and they reject it, and they reject it. And then comes the curse. Then comes the punishment. To the point that you look in Lamentations, literally, children are dying in the arms of their mother of starvation because of 
what has happened with the nation of Israel rejecting him. All the priests or the leaders of that time have been wiped out. He's allowed them to be wiped out because they led the people astray. And yet in the midst of that, Jeremiah could know that God is faithful. Jeremiah's message to the Israelites in captivity was to know that just as God has been faithful to the warnings and promises, so he would be faithful to the future promises of restoration from captivity. So we're talking about a dependable reliability. Or let me put it this way, consistent, reliable, trustworthy. That's what we're talking about when we talk about faithfulness. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Scriptures say God is unchanging. Holy, holy, holy. He doesn't need to change. He's perfect. So we know he's consistent. If we see a part of the scriptures and we say, hmm, I don't understand that. We look to the rest of it and go, there's a consistency there. It may take us a moment to understand it, but there's a consistency in God. What am I saying? I'm saying that so it must be in our marriage. As we press into God, we too take on more of that faithfulness, that consistency, reliability, trustworthiness. The Bible tells us in Galatians 5.22 that the fruit of the Spirit, again, is faithfulness. Through repentance and faith in Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God can help us become a faithful person, as I mentioned. Someone who is consistent, reliable, and trustworthy unto God. What does that look like? Well, faithfulness in marriage, is, it, is part of that keeping your wedding vows? Yes. Sure. But that's just a start. Faithfulness also means being consistent in character, actions, and speech. Spouses can be confident in their love for each other and fully trust each other, knowing that Christ is at the center. If I'm working in my walk with Christ, taking on more sacrificial love and taking on more of Christ where I'm more consistent, reliable, and trustworthy, and she's working on sacrificial love, taking more on that consistency, reliability, and trustworthiness of that faithfulness, what's the result? Our relationship grows deeper and stronger through Christ. It's a God-powered behavior. And I, I want to emphasize that because we can get confused in our flesh. Hey, listen, we can do wonderful things in our flesh. That's, that, that's great, but this is all things on to God. And the only way we can do things on to God, if we've repented of our sins and put our faith in Jesus and have the spirit of God teaching changing our heart so we can do those very things. What did God tell his disciples? You're going to go on to do greater things than you've seen me do. And in part by the Spirit, they went on to cast out demons, bring people back to life, heal the sick. They went to do great things. And so it is for our marriages. In Proverbs 5.15 and 31.11, 5.15 kind of deals with the husband, and 31.11 kind of deals with the wife. Both present a faithful husband and wife. And, they're, and really, I won't go into details of this. I'll just say this. They're about the business and responsibilities the Lord has given them. That's what it comes out. I, I, as I was preparing for this, I was thinking, like, dude, stay in your lane. 
That's why I keep saying stay in your lane. Wife, stay in your lane. Husband, stay in your lane. Focus on what the Lord has called you to. If you stay in your lane and focus on what the Lord has called you to, then the results will be things onto God. That means I'm not always focused on what my wife needs to do. I'm focused on what I'm not doing that Christ has called me to. Then I may impact my wife in the way that I may think things need to go. That doesn't mean you don't have conversations about things and <laughs> ignore each other. I'm just saying we can often look across over the fence at someone else's household, and our house is a complete wreck, right? And so it is in our marriages. If we focus just on our core responsibility and then work from there. So, love. Sacrificial love. Faithfulness, consistency, reliability, and trustworthiness. Y'all say that with me? Love. Sacrificial love. What is faithfulness? Consistency, reliability, and trustworthiness. What do we do with that? Well, we're supposed to take the love and faithfulness, that sacrificial love, and that consistency, reliability, and trustworthiness, and we're supposed to bind it around our neck. Wow, what does that look like? To bind is to define to wrap around with something or to enclose or to cover. Think of it in terms of like a necklace. You might wear a necklace, and the links on it are bound together, and it stays around your neck when you put in that clasp. It stays around there. Think of it that way. Deuteronomy 6, 8, you'll see this binding. It's been used many times in Scripture. In Deuteronomy 6, 8, it, it talks about Israel to bind his commands, the sign of their hands and frontlets between their eyes. And actually, in a past time, and they may still do this today, it led some Jews to actually copy certain texts of Scripture, put them in a leather case, and tie the case to the left arm and the other texts of Scripture around the forehead. They literally took that as a literal meaning in some cases. But the whole point is, it is back to God. So let's go back to that whole uh, necklace piece. What does a necklace do? Sometimes you wear a neck, it adorns you, it kind of enhances, right? Uh, it may add to uh, the overall uh, outfit or whatever you're wearing. When we think about love and faithfulness of God, we're talking about something that is so ingrained in us that whether we turn left or right, it's like a necklace, it, it automatically exudes out of us. It enhances us. When they see us, they see godliness. They see Christ-likeness. That's what they see. We are wearing it in such a way that consistency, reliability, that trustworthiness, that sacrificial love, that when people interact with us, it's like it's bound around our neck like a necklace. They're just, man, these guys are a little bit different. I've seen people do love, but they always keep talking about Christ, and their, their love is, they put everything on the line, and they point people back to Christ. Or, man, they're trustworthy. I've seen trustworthy people, but these people keep talking about trustworthiness and going back to Christ. See, if you look at what Christ did, Christ did not do anything without pointing back to the Father in heaven. And disciples didn't do anything without pointing back to him. And so we are to live a life that is so bound with the love and faithfulness of Christ that people don't look and say, it's me or it's 
Tina or it's Ruth or it's whoever. No, it's, it's God. They keep talking about it's God. It's God. It's God. It's God. Love and faithfulness is bound to your being, whether you walk, talk, think, sit down, or you're exhibiting love and faithfulness, consistency, reliable, trustworthiness of Christ. You're exhibiting godliness is what we're talking about. We're talking about the very work that Christ died on the cross for us so then we could be brought back into the fold and be the Christ, the God representation that he called us to be. What does that mean for our marriage? Each spouse bounding, binding in love, that sacrificial love, each spouse binding in faithfulness, that consistency, reliability, and trustworthiness of Christ around their neck, how they speak to each other, how they live, how they argue, how they celebrate, how they have joy, how they have sorrow, how they mourn, how they laugh, how they have thoughts in their heads. Each spouse is more of Christ and less of themselves. You know what we're talking about here? We're talking about increasing in your oneness. That's what it comes down to. If we say that, you know, marriage is husband and wife become one, we're talking about spiritually they become one. And they're exhibiting Christ. So we're talking about how do we get to that oneness? The sacrificial love. The consistency. The trustworthiness. The reliability of Christ. You guys with me? All right. Next, writing on the heart. What does that look like? So we have the love of Christ, the sacrificial love, the faithfulness of Christ, the consistency, reliability, trustworthiness, the binding around our neck where it just exudes from us, like a necklace that enhances everything about our very being, enhances and shows and exhibits Christ. Now he says, write this on your heart. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. What is this? Is this like when Jesus, when Christ told Nicodemus, you must be reborn again, and Nicodemus said, so I could go back in my mother's womb? What is this all about? Do you literally have to write it on your heart? And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God is doing a work on our heart. What else is happening? Let's bring this together. What else is happening? Maybe another verse can shed more light. So I looked at the, cont- so it's the great thing about the, that's my time, you know, we're getting close to wrapping this up. <laughs> So maybe we won't have the intermission that I thought. (laughs) So if we look at Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 7, it's great to have those different translations because sometimes they can shed another light based on the wording. And the contemporary English version says, listen, listen, Israel, the Lord our God is the one true God. So love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Memorize his laws. That was the difference right there. It says memorize his laws. That is so important. That's what it goes back to, right? We're going to write them on our heart. We have to dive into the word of God, take it to memory, then pray that the spirit will do a work in our hearts so it will be written on our hearts. It becomes second nature. Think about the jobs you do in life. 
or moms or fathers or jobs at work. It becomes second nature once you get in that routine. It's just built in you. So it just becomes, you don't have to think about it. I know I got to do it. I got to do this. I got to do this. You just go and do it. So it must be with the very word of God. We take it to memory. We pray that it will impact our hearts. It may seem like, oh, that's just very simplistic. That is that. <laughs> just that simple. We make it more complicated. I make it more complicated with my broken, sinful nature. It's God. It's God doing the work. Writing on our heart is another way of saying, studying the word of God and take it to memory along with the working of the Holy Spirit in much prayer. Like I said, the word may not just be head knowledge, but impact the heart where we see God in greater fashion, which impacts our marriage into more oneness onto him. That's what we're talking about, a greater oneness between a husband and a wife. It actually kind of works even the opposite way. Uh, which I'll explain in a minute, kind of backwards the way it, uh, it flows. As we take the, to memory the Word of God and the Holy Spirit uses it to teach us, that Holy Spirit is illuminating. It's showing truths to us and changing our heart more for God on how we live out Jesus to have a marriage that's more centered on Him. It's the work of the Spirit. It's the work of the Spirit. We must repent of our sins, put our faith in Jesus, Receive the Holy Spirit. Have the work of the Spirit within you. Our marriages are impacted in our coming and going, thoughts, spoken words, and relationships because now we are sacrificial love by means of Christ. Our faithfulness, our consistency, reliability, and trustworthiness is increasing. We are exhibiting in a way that's bound around us, and they see it and it's written on our hearts, I actually would turn it around the other way and say, with the working of spirit, if we pursue the word of God, then the word of God starts to grow in our hearts. And then from there, we start to exhibit the things out of the word of God, like the very love, the sacrificial love, and then also the faithfulness, the consistency, reliability, and trustworthiness. And then it exhibits from our bodies like it's bound to us. So it starts with the working of the spirit, and us pursuing the word of God, and everything goes from there. This impacts our walk, and it specifically impacts our marriage. Love, faithfulness, bound around our necks, written on our hearts. Can you say that with me? Love, faithfulness, bind around our necks, written on our hearts. Thanks, Vince. That's awesome. So let's pull this all together for the last piece here. We're taking it home. As we grow in our love and faithfulness in God, it will bound to our necks and written on our hearts by the Holy Spirit in such a way that the Lord delights in that. Do you realize the Lord delights in the fact that when we are obedient to him, he delights in that? He delights in the fact that we are obedient to the calling in part by the very spirit he put in us. And he will use that aroma to impact other lives. So when we get to the part where it says, oh, let, let me read this part real quick. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. That's Psalm 147, 11. So he delights in that. And when we're in him, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We have that, those that fear in him, that awe in him, then we know we have that. <laughs> 
<laughs> and steadfast love. <laughs> Thank you, brother. <laughs> so last piece, I'm bringing it home and we will be done. So the last part says, then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. And we have covered this, but I'm going to bring this part up here. It's the sowing and reaping. He says in Galatians 6, 7 through 8, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, they will also reap. For one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. We are talking about that if we exhibit love, that sacrificial love, faithfulness, that trustworthiness, reliability, consistency, and it's bound around our necks, and we're writing it on our hearts but as we pursue the Word of God in our marriages. We are choosing a path that leads to favor and good success. He's telling you that if you are obedient to pursuing His Word, if you're obedient and you really have repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus, these are the promises. He will delight in it, and it will bring success to your marriages. It will bring success to you. I'm not talking about in millions of dollars. I'm talking about success in the walk that God has called you to because that's what we'll be held accountable for when we stand before him. And he will use that as a living testimony to impact others where they may delight in that also. When they see the aroma of your love, your faithfulness, your binding around the neck and writing on your heart, it will impact others who may not know Christ or who are a little bit weaker in the faith. It will Stir them up for the things of God as he chooses to soften their heart to do so. You can be used as a living vessel that you've been called to. Does that make sense? Love, faithfulness, binding around your neck, and writing on your heart. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you that again as a holy God, you give us our marching orders. You give us the spirit within us to do the work, soften our hearts, to receive the truths. And our job is just to increasingly be faithful. Father, I thank you for your word. I, I thank you for Proverbs 3 and, and, and 3 through 4. I thank you for what you call us to, the love, the faithfulness, the binding, the writing on our hearts, that we would meditate and chew on that uh, in a way that would make us think about our particular role uh, in our spousal relationship or our singleness and what it looks like for us to exhibit and have these things bound around our necks and written on our hearts that if we just for even just an inch movement would take our walk in you that inch more seriously or fourth of an inch, however you do it in our hearts, then may your will be done accordingly. <laughs> may we desire more of you. May we meditate and rejoice in you. May we repent before you. And may we be grown up and matured more in Christ's likeness. We lift up these things in your son's matchless name. Amen. So please stand with us as we continue our worship and sing. We're going to sing the song, Oh Great God, and this is a fantastic way to respond.